The Time Traders, Volume 2, Chapter 3 Ross stood cautiously against the wall of his darkened room, his head turned toward the slightly open door. A slight shuffling sound had awakened him, and he was now as ready as a cat before her spring. But he did not hurl himself at the figure now easing the door farther open. He waited until the visitor was approaching the bunk before he slid along the wall, closing the door and putting his shoulders against it. "'What's the pitch?' Ross demanded in a whisper. There was a ragged breath, maybe two, then a little laugh out of the dark. "'You are ready?' The visitor's accent left no doubt as to his identity. Kurt was paying him the promised visit. "'Did you think that I wouldn't be?' "'No.' The dim figure sat without invitation on the edge of the bunk. I would not be here otherwise, Murdoch. You are plenty... have plenty on the ball. You see, I have heard things about you. Like me, you were tricked into this game. Tell me, is it not true that you saw Hardy tonight? You hear a lot, don't you? Ross was noncommittal. I hear, I see. I learn more than these big mouths, like the Major with all his do's and don'ts. That I can tell you. You saw Hardy. Do you want to be a Hardy? Is there any danger of that? Danger? Kurt snorted. Danger? You have not yet known the meaning of danger, little man. Not until now. I ask you again. Do you want to end like Hardy? They have not yet looped you in with all their big talk. That is why I came here tonight. If you know what is good for you, Murdoch, you will make a break before they tape you. Tape me? Kurt's laugh was full of anger, not amusement. Oh, yes, they have many tricks here. They are big brains, eggheads, all of them with their favorite gadgets. They put you through a machine to get you registered on a tape. Then, my boy, you cannot get outside the base without ringing all the alarms. Neat, eh? So if you want to make a break, you must try it before they tape you. Ross did not trust Kurt, but he was listening to him attentively. The other's argument sounded convincing to one whose general ignorance of science led him to be as fearful of the whole field as his ancestors had been of black magic. As all his generation, he was conditioned to believe that all kinds of weird inventions were entirely possible and probable, usually to be produced in some dim future, but perhaps today. They must have you taped, Ross pointed out. Kurt laughed again, but this time he was amused. They believe that they have. Only they are not as smart as they believe, the Major and the rest, including Millard. No, I have a fighting chance to get out of this place, only I cannot do it alone. That is why I have been waiting for them to bring in a new guy I could get to before they had him pinned down for good. You are tough, Murdoch. I saw your record, and I'm betting that you did not come here with the intention of staying. So, here is your chance to go along with one who knows the ropes. You will not have such a good one again. The longer Kurt talked, the more convincing he was. Ross lost a few of his suspicions. 
It was true that he had come prepared to run at the first possible opportunity. And if Kurt had everything planned, so much the better. Of course, it was possible that Kurt was a stool pigeon, leading him on as a test. But that was a chance Ross would have to take. Look here, Murdoch. Maybe you think it's easy to break out of here. Do you know where we are, boy? We're near enough to the North Pole, as makes no difference. Are you going to leg it back some hundreds of miles through thick ice and snow? A nice jaunt if you make it. I do not think that you can, not without plans and a partner who knows what he is about. And how do we go? Steal one of those atom jets? I'm no pilot. Are you? They have other things besides AJs here. This place is strictly hush-hush. Even the AJs do not set down too often for fear they will be tracked by radar. Where have you been, boy? Don't you know the Reds are circling around up here? These fellows watch for Red activity and the Reds watch them. They play it under the table on both sides. We get our supplies overland by cats. Cats? Snow sleds, like tractors, the other answered impatiently. Our stuff is dumped miles to the south, and the cats go down once a month to bring it back. There's no trick to driving a cat, and they tear off the miles. How many miles to the south? inquired Ross skeptically. Granted, Kurt was speaking the truth. Travel over an Arctic wilderness in a stolen machine was risky, to say the least. Ross had only a very vague idea of the polar regions, but he was sure that they could easily swallow up the unwary forever. Maybe only a hundred or so, boy, but I have more than one plan, and I'm willing to risk my neck. Do you think I intend to start out blind? There was that, of course. Ross had early sized up his visitor as one who was first of all interested in his own welfare. He wouldn't risk his neck without a definite plan in mind. Well, what do you say, Murdoch? Are you with me or not? I'll take some time to chew it over. Time is what you do not have, boy. Tomorrow they will tape you. Then, no over the wall for you. Suppose you tell me your trick for fooling the tape, Ross countered. That I cannot do, seeing as how it lies in the way my brain is put together. Do you think I can break open my skull and hand you a piece of what is inside? No, you jump with me tonight, or else I must wait to grab the next one who lands here. Kurt stood up. His last words were spoken matter-of-factly, and Ross believed he meant exactly what he said. But Ross hesitated. He wanted to try for freedom, a desire fed by his suspicions of what was going on here. He neither liked nor trusted Kurt, but he thought he understood him better than he understood Ash or the others. Also, with Kurt, he was sure he could hold his own. It would be the kind of struggle he had experienced before. Tonight, he repeated slowly. Yes, tonight. There was new eagerness in Kurt's voice, for he sensed that the other was wavering. I have been preparing for a long time, but there must be two of us. We have to take turns driving the cat. There can be no rest until we are far to the south. 
I tell you, it will be easy. There are food caches arranged along the route for emergencies. I have a map marked to show where they are. Are you coming? When Ross did not answer at once, the other moved closer to him. Remember Hardy. He was not the first, and he will not be the last. They use us up fast here. That is why they brought you so quickly. I tell you, it is better to take your chance with me than on a run. And what is a run? So they have not yet briefed you. Well, a run is a little jaunt back into history. Not nice, comfortable history, such as you learned out of a book when you were a little kid. No, you are dropped back into some savage time before history. That's impossible. Yes, you saw those two big blonde boys tonight, did you not? Why do you suppose they sport those braids? Because they are taking a little trip into the time when he-men wore braids and carried axes big enough to crack a man open. And Hodaki and his partner ever hear of the Tartars? Maybe you have not, but once they nearly overran most of Europe. Ross swallowed. He now knew where he had seen braids pictured on warriors. The Vikings. And Tartars, yes, that movie about someone named Khan, Genghis Khan. But to return into the past was impossible. Yet he remembered the picture he had watched today with the wolf slayer and the shaggy-haired man who wore skins. Neither of these was of his own world. Could Kurt be telling the truth? Ross's vivid memory of the scene he had witnessed made Kurt's story more convincing. Suppose you get sent back to a time where they do not like strangers, Kurt continued. Then you are in for it. That is what happened to Hardy, and it is not good, not good at all. But why? Kurt snorted. That they do not tell you until just before you take your first run. I do not want to know why, but I do know that I am not going to be sent into any wilderness where a savage may run a spear through me just to prove something or other for Major John Kilgarry's, or for Millard either. I will try my plan first. The urgency in Kurt's protest carried Ross past the wavering point. He, too, would try the cat. He was only familiar with this time and world. He had no desire to be sent into another one. Once Ross had made his decision, Kurt hurried him into action. Kurt's knowledge of the secret procedures at the base proved excellent. Twice they were halted by locked doors, but only momentarily, for Kurt had a tiny gadget concealed in the palm of his hand, which had only to be held over a latch to open a recalcitrant door. There was enough light in the corridors to give them easy passage, but the rooms were dark, and twice Kurt had to lead Ross by the hand, avoiding furniture or installations with the surety of one who had practiced that same route often. Murdoch's opinion of his companion's ability underwent several upward revisions during that tour, and he began to believe that he was really in luck to have found such a partner. In the last room, Ross willingly followed Kurt's orders to put on the fur clothing Kurt passed to him. The fit was not exact, 
but he surmised that Kurt had chosen as well as possible. A final door opened, and they stepped out into the polar night of winter. Kurt's mittened hand grasped Ross's, pulling him along. Together, they pushed back the door of a hangar shed to get at their escape vehicle. The cat was a strange machine, but Ross was given no time to study it. He was shoved into the cockpit, a bubble covering settled down over them, closing them in, and the engine came to life under Kurt's urging. The cat must be traveling at its best pace, Ross thought. Yet the crawl which took them away from the mounded snow covering the base seemed hardly better than a man could make afoot. For a short time, Kurt headed straight away from the starting point, but Ross soon heard him counting slowly to himself as if he were timing something. At the count of twenty, the cat swung to the right and made a wide half-circle, which was copied at the next count of twenty by a similar sweep in the opposite direction. After this pattern had been repeated for six turns, Ross found it difficult to guess whether they had ever returned to their first course. When Kurt stopped counting, he asked, Why the dance pattern? Would you rather be scattered in little pieces all over the landscape? The other snapped. The base doesn't need fences two miles high to keep us in, or others out. They take other precautions. You should thank fortune we got through that first minefield without blowing. Ross swallowed, but he refused to let Kurt know that he was rattled. So it isn't as easy to get away as you said. Shut up! Kurt began counting again, and Ross had some cold, apprehensive moments in which to reflect upon the folly of quick decisions and wonder bleakly why he had not thought things through before he leaped. Again they sketched a weaving pattern in the snow, but this time the arcs formed acute angles. Ross glanced now and then at the intent man at the wheel. How had Kurt managed to memorize this route? His urge to escape the base must certainly be a strong one. Back and forth they crawled, gaining only a few yards in each of those angled strikes to right or left. Good thing these cats are atomic-powered. Kurt commented during one of the intervals between minefields. We'd run out of fuel otherwise. Ross fought down the impulse to move his feet away from any possible contact point with the engine. These machines must be safe to ride in, but the bogey of radiation was frightening. Luckily, Kurt was now back to a straight track with no more weaving. We are out, Kurt said with exultation but he added no more than just the reassurance of their escape. The cat crawled on. To Ross's eyes there was no trail to follow, no guideposts, yet Kurt steered ahead with confidence. A little later he pulled to a stop and said to Ross, We have to drive, turn, and turn about. Your turn. Ross was dubious. Well, I, I can drive a car, but this... It's foolproof, Kurt caught him up. The worst was getting through the minefields, and we are out of that now. See here, his hand made a shadow on the lighted instrument panel. This will keep you straight. If you can steer a car, you can steer this. Watch. He started up again and once more swung the cat to the left. A light on the panel began to blink at a rate which increased rapidly as they veered farther away from their original course.
See? You keep that light steady, and you are on course. If it begins to blink, you cast about until it steadies again. Simple enough for a baby. Take over and see. It was hard to change places in the sealed cabin of the cat, but they were successful, and Ross took the wheel gingerly. Following Kurt's directions, he started ahead, his eyes focused on the light rather than the white expanse before him. And after a few minutes of strain, he caught the hang of it. As Kurt had promised, it was very simple. After watching him for a while, his instructor gave a grunt of satisfaction and settled down for a nap. Once the first excitement of driving the cat wore off, the operation tended to become monotonous. Ross caught himself yawning, but he kept at his post with dogged stubbornness. This had been Kurt's game all the way through so far, and he was certainly not going to resign his first chance to show that he could be of use also. If there had only been some break in the eternal snow, some passing light or goal to be seen ahead, it would not have been so bad. Finally, every now and then, Ross had to jiggle off course just enough so that the warning blink of light would alert him and keep him from falling asleep. He was unaware that Kurt had awakened during one of those maneuvers until the other spoke. Your own private alarm clock, Murdoch? Okay, I do not quarrel with anyone who uses his head. But you had better get some shut-eye, or we will not keep rolling. Ross was too tired to protest. They changed places, and he curled up as best he could on his small share of seat. Only now that he was free to sleep, he realized he no longer wanted to. Kurt must have thought Ross had fallen asleep, for after perhaps two miles of steady grinding along, he moved cautiously behind the wheel. Ross saw by the trace of light from the instrument panel that his companion was digging into the breast of his parka to bring out a small object which he held against the wheel of the cat with one hand, while with the other he tapped out an irregular rhythm. To Ross, the action made no sense, but he did not miss the other's sigh of relief as he restored his treasure to hiding once more, as if some difficult task was now behind him. Shortly afterward the cat ground to a stop, and Ross sat up, rubbing his eyes. What's the matter? Engine trouble? Kurt had folded his arms across the wheel. No, it is just that we are to wait here. Wait? For what? Kilgarry's to come along and pick us up? Kurt laughed. The Major? How I wish that he would arrive presently. What a surprise he would receive. Not two little mice to be put back into their cages, but the tiger cat, all claws and fangs. Ross sat up straighter. This now had the bad smell of a frame, a frame with himself planted right in the middle. He figured out the possibilities and came up with an answer which would smear Ross Murdoch all over any map. If Kurt were waiting to meet friends out here, they could only be of one brand. For most of his short life, Ross had been engaged in a private war against the restrictions imposed upon him by a set of legal rules to which something within him would not conform. And he had, during those same years filled with attacks, retreats, and strategic maneuvering, formulated a code of rules by which to play his dangerous game. 
he had not murdered, and he would never follow the path Kurt took. To one who was supremely impatient of restraint, the methods and aims of Kurt's employers were not only impossibly fantastic and illogical, they were to be opposed to the last ounce of any man's energy. Your friend's late? He tried to sound casual. Not yet. And if you now plan to play the hero, Murdoch, think better of it. Kurt's tone held the crack of an order, that note Ross had so much disliked in the Major's voice. This is an operation which has been most carefully planned and upon which a great deal depends. No one shall spoil it for us now. The Reds planted you on the project, eh? Ross wanted to keep the other talking to give himself a chance to think. And this was one time he had to think, clearly and with speed. There is no need for me to tell you the sad tale of my life, Murdoch, and you would doubtless find much of it boring. If you wish to continue to live, for a while at least, you will remain quiet and do as you are told. Kurt must be armed, for he would not be so confident unless he had a weapon he could now turn on Ross. On the other hand, if what Ross guessed were true, this was the time to play the hero, when there was only Kurt to handle. Better to be a dead hero than a live captive in the hands of Kurt's dear friends across the pole. Without warning, Ross threw his body to the left, striving to pin Kurt against the driver's side of the cabin, his hands clawing at the fur ruff bordering the other's hood, trying for a throat hold. Perhaps it was Kurt's overconfidence which betrayed him and left him open to a surprise attack. He struggled hard to bring up his arm, but both his weight and Ross's held him tight. Ross caught at his wrist, noticing a gleam of metal. They threshed about, the bulkiness of the fur clothing hampering them. Ross wondered fleetingly why the other had not made sure of him earlier. As it was, he fought with all his vigor to keep Kurt immobile, to try and knock him out with a lucky blow. In the end, Kurt aided in his own defeat. When Ross relaxed somewhat, the other pushed against him, only to have Ross flinch to one side. Kurt could not stop himself, and his head cracked against the wheel of the cat. He went limp. Ross made the most of the next few moments. He brought his belt from under his parka, twisting it around Kurt's wrists with no gentleness. Then he wriggled about, changing places with the unconscious man. He had no idea of where to go, but he was sure he was going to get away, at the cat's top speed, from that point. And with that in mind and only a limited knowledge of how to manage the machine, Ross started up and turned in a wide circle until he was sure the cat was headed in the opposite direction. The light which had guided them was still on. Would reversing its process take him back to the base? Lost in the immensity of the cold wilderness, he made the only choice possible and gunned the cat again. Chapter 4 Once again Ross sat waiting for others to decide his future. He was as outwardly composed as he had been in Judge Rawls' chambers, but inwardly he was far more apprehensive. Out in the wilderness of the polar night he had had no chance for escape. Heading away from Kurt's rendezvous, Ross had run straight into the search party from the base, 
had seen in action that mechanical hound that Kurt had said they would put on the fugitive's trail, the thing which would have gone on hunting them until its metal rusted into powder. Kurt's boasted immunity to that tracker had not been as good as he had believed, though it had won them a start. Ross did not know just how much it might count in his favor that he had been on his way back, with Kurt a prisoner in the cat. As his waiting hours wore on, he began to think it might mean very little indeed. This time there was no show on the wall of his cell, nothing but time to think, too much of that, and no pleasant things to think about. But he had learned one valuable lesson on that cold expedition. Calgary's and the others at the base were the most formidable opponents he had ever met and all the balance of luck and equipment lay on their side of the scales. Ross was now convinced that there could be no escape from this base. He had been impressed by Kurt's preparations, knowing that some of them were far beyond anything he himself could have devised. He did not doubt that Kurt had come here fully prepared with every ingenious device the Reds could supply. At least Kurt's friends had had a rude welcome when they did arrive at the meeting place. Calgary's had heard Ross out, and then had sent ahead a team. Before Ross's party had reached the base, there had been a blast which split the Arctic night wide open. And Kurt, conscious by then, had shown his only sign of emotion when he realized what it meant. The door to Ross's cell room clicked, and he swung his feet to the floor, sitting up on his bunk to face his future. This time he made no attempt to put on an act. He was not in the least sorry he had tried to get away. Had Kurt been on the level, it would have been a bright play. That Kurt was not was just plain bad luck. Calgary's and Ash entered, and at the sight of Ash the taut feeling in Ross's middle loosened a bit. The Major might come by himself to pass sentence, but he would not bring Ash along if the sentence was a really harsh one. You got off to a bad start here, Murdoch. The major sat down on the edge of the wall shelf, which doubled as a table. You're going to have a second chance, so consider yourself lucky. We know you aren't another plant of our enemies, a fact that saves your neck. Do you have anything to add to your story? No, sir. He was not adding that sir to curry any favor. It came naturally when one answered Calgary's. But you have some questions. Ross met that with the truth. A lot of them. Why don't you ask them? Ross smiled thinly, an expression far removed and years older than his bashful boy's grin of the shy act. A wise guy doesn't spill his ignorance. He uses his eyes and ears and keeps his trap shut and goes off half-cocked as a result, the Major added. I don't think you would have enjoyed the company of Kurt's paymaster. I didn't know about him then, not when I left here. Yes, and when you discovered the truth, you took steps. Why? For the first time, there was a trace of feeling in the Major's voice. Because I don't like the lineup on his side of the fence. That single fact has saved your neck this time, Murdoch. Step out of line once more, and nothing will help you. But just so we won't have to worry about that, 
Suppose you ask a few of those questions. How much of what Kurt fed me is the truth? Ross blurted out. I mean all that stuff about shooting back in time. All of it. The Major said it so quietly that it carried complete conviction. But why? How? You have us on a spot, Murdoch. Because of your little expedition, we have to tell you more now than we tell any of our men before the final briefing. Listen, and then forget all of it, except what applies to the job at hand. The Reds shot up Sputnik, and then Mutnik. When? Twenty-five years ago. We got up our answers a little later. There were a couple of spectacular crashes on the moon, and then that space station that didn't stay in orbit. After that, stalemate. In the past quarter century, we've had no voyages into space, nothing that was prophesied. Too many bugs. Too many costly failures. Finally, we began to get hints of something big, bigger than any football roaming the heavens. Any discovery in science comes about by steps. It can be traced back through those steps by another scientist. But suppose you were confronted by a result which apparently had been produced without any preliminaries. What would be your guess concerning it? Ross stared at the Major. Although he didn't see what all this had to do with time-jumping, he sensed that Calgarius was waiting for a serious answer, that somehow Ross would be judged by his reply. Either that the steps were kept strictly secret, he said slowly, or that the result didn't rightfully belong to the man who said he discovered it. For the first time the Major regarded him with approval. Suppose this discovery was vital to your life. What would you do? Try to find the source. There you have it. Within the past five years, our friends across the way have come up with three such discoveries. One we were able to trace, duplicate, and use, with a few refinements of our own. The other two remain rootless, yet they are linked with the first. We are now attempting to solve that problem, and the time grows late. For some reason, though the Reds now have their super, super gadgets, they are not yet ready to use them. Sometimes the things work, and sometimes they fail. Everything points to the fact that the Reds are now experimenting with discoveries which are not basically their own. Where did they get them? From another world? Ross's imagination came to life. Had a successful space voyage been kept secret? Had there been contact made with another intelligent race? In a way, it's another world, but the world of time, not space. Seven years ago, we got a man out of East Berlin. He was almost dead, but he lived long enough to record on tape some amazing data. So wild, it was almost dismissed as the ravings of delirium. But that was after Sputnik and we didn't dare disregard any hints from the other side of the Iron Curtain. So the recording was turned over to our scientists, who proved it had a core of truth. Time travel has been written up in fiction. It has been discussed otherwise as an impossibility. Then we discover that the Reds have it working. You mean they go into the future and bring back machines to use now? The Major shook his head. 
not the future, the past. Was this an elaborate joke? Somewhat heatedly, Ross snapped out the answer to that. Look here, I know I haven't the education of your big brains, but I do know that the farther back you go into history, the simpler things are. We ride in cars. Only a hundred years ago, men drove horses. We have guns. Go back a little and you'll find them waving swords and shooting guys with bows and arrows. Those that don't wear tin plate on them to stop being punctured. Only they were, after all, commented Ash. Look at Agincourt, Malad, and remember what arrows did to the French knights in armor. Ross disregarded the interruption. Anyway, he stuck doggedly to his point. The farther back you go, the simpler things are. How are the Reds going to find anything in history we can't beat today? That is a point which has baffled us for several years now, the Major returned. Only it is not how they are going to find it, but where. Because somewhere in the past of this world, they have contacted a civilization able to produce weapons and ideas so advanced as to baffle our experts. We have to find that source and either mine it ourselves or close it off. As yet, we're still trying to find it. Ross shook his head. It must be a long way back. Those guys who discover tombs and dig up old cities, couldn't they give you some hints? Wouldn't a civilization like that have left something we could find today? It depends, Ash remarked, upon the type of civilization. The Egyptians built in stone, grandly. They used tools and weapons of copper, bronze, and stone, and they were considerate enough to operate in a dry climate which preserved relics well. The cities of the Fertile Crescent built in mud brick and used stone, copper, and bronze tools. They also chose a portion of the world where climate was a factor in keeping their memory green. The Greeks built in stone, wrote their books, kept their history to bequeath it to their successors, and so did the Romans. And on this side of the ocean, the Incas, the Mayas, the unknown races before them, and the Aztecs of Mexico, all built in stone and worked in metal, and stone and metal survive. But what if there had been an early people who used plastics and brittle alloys, who had no desire to build permanent buildings, whose tools and artifacts were meant to wear out quickly, perhaps for economic reasons? What would they leave us? considering perhaps that an ice age had intervened between their time and ours, with glaciers to grind into dust what little they did possess. There is evidence that the poles of our world have changed and that this northern region was once close to being tropical. Any catastrophe violent enough to bring about a switch in the poles of this planet might well have wiped out all traces of a civilization, no matter how superior. We have good reason to believe that such a people must have existed, but we must find them. And Ash is a convert from the skeptics. The Major slipped down from his perch on the wall shelf. He is an archaeologist, one of your tomb discoverers, and knows what he is talking about. We must do our hunting in time earlier than the first pyramid, earlier than the first group of farmers who settled by the Tigris River. But we have to let the enemy guide us to it. That's where you come in. Why me? 
That is a question to which our psychologists are still trying to find the answer, my young friend. It seems that the majority of the people of the several nations linked together in this project have become too civilized. The reactions of most men to given sets of circumstances have become set in regular patterns and they cannot break that conditioning, or if personal danger forces them to change those patterns. They are afterwards so adrift they cannot function at their highest potential. Teach a man to kill, as in war, and then you have to recondition him later. But during these same wars we also develop another type. He is the born commando, the secret agent, the expendable man who lives on action. There are not many of this kind, and they are potent weapons. In peacetime that particular collection of emotions, nerve and skills becomes a menace to the very society he has fought to preserve during a war. He is pressured by the peaceful environment into becoming a criminal or a misfit. The men we send out from here to explore the past are not only given the best training we can possibly supply for them, but they are all of the type once heralded as the frontiersmen. History is sentimental about that type when he is safely dead, but the present finds him difficult to live with. Our time agents are misfits in the modern world because their inherited abilities are born out of season now. They must be young enough and possess a certain brand of intelligence to take the stiff training and to adapt, and they must pass our tests. Do you understand? Ross nodded. You want crooks because they are crooks? No, not because they are crooks, but because they are misfits in their time and place. Don't, I beg of you, Murdoch. Think that we are operating a penal institution here. You would never have been recruited if you hadn't tested out to suit us. But the man who may be labeled murderer in his own period might rank as a hero in another. An extreme example, but true. When we train a man, he not only can survive in the period to which he is sent, but he can also pass as a native born in that era. What about Hardy? The Major gazed into space. There is no operation which is foolproof. We have never said that we don't run into trouble or that there is no danger in this. We have to deal with both natives of different times, and if we are lucky and hit a hot run, with the Reds. They suspect that we are casting about, hunting their trail. They managed to plant Kurt Vogel on us. He had an almost perfect cover and conditioning. Now you have it straight, Murdoch. You satisfy our tests, and you'll be given a chance to say yes or no before your first run. If you say no and refuse duty, it means you must become an exile and stay here. No man who has gone through our training can return to normal life. There is too much chance of his being picked up and sweated by the opposition. Never? The Major shrugged. This may be a long-term operation. We hope not, but there is no way of telling now. You will be in exile until we either find what we want or fail entirely. That is the last card I have to lay on the table. He stretched. You're slated for training tomorrow. Think it over and then let us know your answer when the time comes. Meanwhile... 
you are to be teamed with Ash, who will see to putting you through the course. It was a big hunk to swallow, but once down, Ross found it digestible. The training opened up a whole new world to him. Judo and wrestling were easy enough to absorb, and he thoroughly enjoyed the workouts. But the patient hours of archery practice, the strict instruction in the use of a long-bladed bronze dagger, were more demanding. The mastering of one new language and then another, the intensive drill in unfamiliar social customs, the memorizing of strict taboos and ethics were difficult. Ross learned to keep records in knots on hide thongs and was inducted into the art of primitive bargaining and trade. He came to understand the worth of a cross-shaped tin ingot compared to a string of amber beads and some well-cured white furs. He now understood why he had been shown a trader's caravan during that first encounter with the purpose behind Operation Retrograde. During the training days, his feeling toward Ash changed materially. A man could not work so closely with another and continue to resent his attitude. Either he blew up entirely, or he learned to adjust. His awe at Ash's vast amount of practical knowledge, freely offered to serve his own blundering ignorance, created a respect for the man which might have become friendship had Ash ever relaxed his own shield of impersonal efficiency. Ross did not try to breach the barrier between them, mainly because he was sure that the reason for it was the fact that he was a volunteer. It gave him an odd new feeling he avoided trying to analyze. He had always had a kind of pride in his record. Now he had begun to wish sometimes that it was a record of a different type. Men came and went. Hodaki and his partner disappeared, as did Jansen and his. One lost track of time within that underground warren which was the base. Ross gradually discovered that the whole establishment covered a large area under an external crust of ice and snow. There were laboratories, a well-appointed hospital, armories which stocked weapons usually seen only in museums, but which here were free of any signs of age and ready for use. There were libraries with mile upon mile of tape recordings as well as films. Ross could not understand everything he heard and saw, but he soaked up all he could so that once or twice, when drifting off to sleep at night, he thought of himself as a sponge which had nearly reached its total limit of absorption. He learned to wear naturally the clumsy kilt tunic he had seen on the wolf slayer, to shave with practiced assurance, using a leaf-shaped bronze razor, to eat strange food until he relished the taste. Making lesson time serve a double duty, he lay under sun lamps while listening to tape recordings, until his skin darkened to a weathered hue resembling ashes. There was always talk to listen to, important talk, which he was afraid to miss. Bronze Ash weighed a dagger in his hand one day. Its hilt, made of dark horn studded with an intricate pattern of tiny golden nail heads, had a gleam not unlike that of the blade. Do you know, Murdoch, that bronze can be tougher than steel? If it wasn't that iron is so much more plentiful and easier to work, we might never have come out of the Bronze Age. Iron is cheaper and easier found, and when the first smith learned to work it, an end came to one way of life, a beginning to another.
Yes, bronze is important to us here, and so are the men who worked it. Smiths were sacred in the old days. We know that they made a secret of their trade, which overrode the bounds of district, tribe, and race. A smith was welcome in any village, his person safe on the road. In fact, the roads themselves were under the protection of the gods. There was peace on them for all wayfarers. The land was wide then, and it was empty. The tribes were few and small, and there was plenty of room for the hunter, the farmer, the trader. Life was not such a scramble of man against man, but rather of man against nature. No wars? asked Ross. Then why the bow and dagger drill? Wars were small affairs, disputes between family clans or tribes. As for the bow, there were formidable things in the forests, giant animals, wolves, wild boars. Cave bears? Ash sighed with weary patience. Get it through your head, Murdoch, that history is much longer than you seem to think. Cave bears and the use of bronze weapons do not overlap. No, you will have to go back maybe several thousand years earlier, and then hunt your bear with a flint-tipped spear in your hand if you are fool enough to try it. Or take a rifle with you, Ross made a suggestion he had longed to voice for some time. Ash rounded on him swiftly, and Ross knew him well enough now to realize that he was seriously displeased. That is just what you don't do, Murdoch, not from this base, as you well know by now. You take no weapon from here which is not designed for the period in which your run lies. Just as you do not become embroiled while on that run in any action which might influence the course of history. Ross went on polishing the blade he held. What would happen if someone did break that rule? Ash put down the dagger he had been playing with. We don't know. We just don't know. So far we have operated in the fringe territory, keeping away from any district with a history which we can trace accurately. Maybe someday. His eyes were on a wall of weapon racks he plainly did not see. Maybe someday we can stand and watch the rise of the pyramids. Witness the march of Alexander's armies. But not yet. We stay away from history, and we are sure that the Reds are doing the same. It has become the old problem once presented by the atom bomb. Nobody wants to upset the balance and take the consequences. Let us find their outpost, and we'll withdraw our men from all the other runs at once. What makes everyone so sure that they have an outpost somewhere? Couldn't they be working right at the main source, sir? They could, but for some reason they are not. As for how we know that much, it's information received. Ash smiled thinly. No, the source is much farther back in time than their halfway post. But if we find that, then we can trail them. So we plant men in suitable eras and hope for the best. That's a good weapon you have there, Murdoch. Are you willing to wear it in earnest? The inflection in that question caught Ross's full attention. His gray eyes met those blue ones. This was it, at long last. Right away? Ash picked up a belt of bronze plates, strung together with chains, a twin to that Ross had seen worn by the wolf slayer. He held it out to the younger man. You can take your trial run any time. Tomorrow. Ross drew a deeper breath. Where? 
to when? An island which will later be Britain. When? About 2000 BC. Beaker traders were beginning to open their stations there. This is your graduation exercise, Murdoch. Ross fitted the blade he had been polishing into the wooden sheath on the belt. If you say I can do it, I'm willing to try. He caught that glance Ash shot at him, but he could not read its meaning. Annoyance? Impatience? He was still puzzling over it when the other turned abruptly and left him alone. <laughs>